definition of science fiction is recreated anew each year. Welcome to what we're going to call Season 2 of Cabbages and Kings after that unplanned summer break, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton-Morse. I apologize for the long delay in the feed. It turns out I can't both take care of the kids and also run a podcast, but now they're back at school, so I can turn my attention to the important things. I have a backlog of wonderful interviews to get you, but first I'm joined by Megan of the blog From Couch to Moon and returning guest Maureen Speller to discuss the Clark Awards. These are an annual juried award to celebrate the best in science fiction published in Britain in the last year. Shortlist was released a while ago. The awards themselves are imminent, and this is the first of two episodes where we'll discuss the six books the jury chose. Not entirely enthusiastically in all cases. In this episode, we'll discuss Arcadia, Children of Time, and Europe at Midnight, and we'll start by asking Megan to tell us a bit about herself and her history with the genre. I don't think I have much history. I just grew up reading stuff that I liked, and I knew I kind of veered toward the SF tradition. It wasn't until about a few years ago where I started blogging about it, and that was just because I kept reading books I didn't really like. From blogging, I started paying attention to awards. And Maureen, you've you've talked a bit about your history with the genre, but you also have a history with the Clark Awards specifically, and I think much more than either me or Megan, a sense of its history and place within UK, especially fandom. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Um, yeah, I have a very long history with the Clark Award. Paul Kincaid, who's my partner, was actually one of the people involved in uh, helping it uh, get off the ground. What actually happened was a rather mysterious chap called Morris Goldsmith ran an organisation called the Science Policy Foundation, I think. Nobody quite knew what it did, but he um, went to Arthur C. Clarke. He was hoping to get money in order to set up a magazine, I think, and uh, Clarke wasn't really very um, sort of convinced by this, but he's happened to say that what he would really like to see is, is an award. And so uh, Morris Goldsmith cast around and um, came in, uh, got in contact with the British Science Fiction Association and the Science Fiction Foundation, which is how they both came to be involved in um, nominating judges. So my first involvement after you know, sort of being aware of it actually being set up was uh, I was a judge fairly early on for the BSFA, and then later on I was a, a judge for the Science Fiction Foundation. And a little after that, Paul became the chair of the award, and he, uh, so he organised the award for uh, a considerable number of years. So Every year I lived with the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the books coming in. And um, because I'm quite scrupulous about these things, every year I did not actually discuss the Arthur C. Clarke Award with anybody. And so I was always reading a year behind. But the, the thing that was very interesting and I think rather difficult for a lot of people to grasp was, um, and this is still the key point, I think, is that the definition of science fiction is recreated anew each year by the, the judging panel. They decide what they understand science fiction to be. And because, of course, the uh, discussions are sub rosa, we never know what goes on in there. I, mean, I still don't know what went on in all the years that Paul was chairing the uh, judging because we, we don't talk about it. So nobody ever has a real idea of what it is that the judges have in mind. But of course, when we get the shortlist, people, critics, commentators, 
bloggers, we like to speculate about it. So over the years, has actually generated a, a considerable body of discussion, particularly since the internet was invented. Back in the pre-internet days, people would talk about it in you know, at pub meetings, but not with the same sense of avidity and you know, sort of speculation and discussion about you know what we mean when we talk about science fiction. It's always a contentious award. If you look back at some of the early winners, I mean, the first winner was Margaret Atwood, and that, that was even before Squids in Space, and that did not play well with a lot of people who felt that the judges had deliberately reached outside um, you know, genre in order to you know, attract attention to the award. But it's uh, over the years, I mean, it was certainly the first sort of 20 odd years, um, there was a, a sense that it was actually sort of pushing at the boundaries and you know, testing out ideas of what science fiction might or might not be. And the the winners, you know, the choices often seemed rather perverse at the time, but I think the bulk of them have actually stood the test of time. I think now it, it seems to me that possibly in recent years the award is still contentious because of this expectation that it will sort of push the boundaries, you know, the shortlists will push the boundaries, whereas uh, a lot of people are beginning to feel that the recent shortlists have been rather more conservative. Mm -hmm. Before we jump into books, I actually have a pretty clear notion of what I mean, and what I sort of expect when I think about science fiction, a moment of recognition of the ways in which this world is, is kind of contingent on lots of different things, and that if science worked a little bit differently, or if we made a couple different assumptions about how, how people worked, or, or communities organized themselves, or the ways aliens were, or even just hyperdense planets, and what would it be like to evolve on something other than Earth, that that what I really like when I'm reading science fiction is that moment of recognition. And, and I realize that that doesn't encompass everything, but I'm curious, do either of you have either strong or not so strong notions about science fiction? And as you were reading these books, were there times where you said to yourself, does this, does this fit within the broad remit of science fiction? I like to go along with, there's a blogger, Anton, at Genre Bending, and they like to say, it's science fiction if I say it is. And that's kind of how I see it. And I don't think there was a single book on the list this year that made me question whether it belongs under science fiction. I, but I have a broader definition. I could see some people maybe questioning Arcadia, but I mean, there's definitely a sci-fi thread in Arcadia. I mean, there are other mm -hmm. reasons to question Arcadia, but that's not one of them. There are lots of reasons to question Arcadia. Yeah. <laughs> and Maureen, for you? Rather like Megan, I, I tend to subscribe to the um, you know what I point to. Uh, I remember being at uh, an SF masterclass uh, some years ago, and I, I de defied uh, genre uh, science fiction as basically stuff Maureen likes, and that's a, you know that's a throwaway. But there is, I put it in terms of a kind of. <laughs> There's a feel, there's, there's something that I recognise, but I've got to the point where I find it quite hard to articulate. But I see it in all of the books here. Arcadia, we're going to have to talk about that, obviously, but um, even, as Megan says, even in Arcadia, et in Arcadia Ego, there is... There's a something. It's possibly a bit more buried, but there is um, a way of approaching the story as well. So I'm not necessarily looking for artifacts. I mean, I can see why Europe at Midnight and Children of Time, you know, can be on the same shortlist. They speak to me in different ways, but there's that sort of kernel of something that is quite definitely science fictional. But having said that, I've sort of come to the conclusion lately that maybe, and certainly in the light of uh, things like 
you know, a reading for this podcast that at some point I'm probably going to have to sit down and have a, a think again about what it is, you know, I mean when I talk about science fiction. On the other hand, having said that, one could uh, draw attention to Gary Wolfe's um, ideas about evaporating genre altogether mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of query what... Uh, so there's a level in which we sort of query the need to do, make distinctions between SF and fantasy and, and other forms of literature, but that's probably another whole podcast. It's funny because I I couldn't be anywhere near as glib or descriptive about fantasy. With fantasy, I would be much more, this feels like fantasy to me. We've all alluded to Arcadia. Shall we start by venting some spleen, or uh, do we want to start on a happier note? Oh, I don't see it so much as venting spleen. I don't know. I mean, Megan may disagree with me, but um, puzzlement, maybe. Part of the gimmick of Arcadia, there are sort of broadly three settings. A future that has become pretty corporate and dystopian. There is a, a not-so-distant past set in our world with, with a guy who knew Tolkien and is, is bicycling around Oxford and also had a history in intelligence during... World War II, right? And then mm -hmm. he is inventing a world called Arcadia. And so there is a timeline in his very idyllic and pastoral Arcadia. And there are ways to transfer between timelines that the people in the future have discovered. And what you can... So this was released as a book, and it was also released as an app for the iPhone. And I will have some screenshots in the show notes. But basically, there are a series of storylines. So each of the main characters gets their storyline and their scenes named. So there's Lytton in the pub, and then the vision, and then fishing for compliments, and Lytton cycles. And some of these scenes intersect because two or more of the characters are in them. And so you can theoretically read anybody's story in any order, and you can jump between different storylines, and you can start following Lytton, who's our Oxford academic, and then when he meets one of the other characters, you can jump over to follow their story, and you can, if you want to, you know, jump down and start somewhere entirely, entirely different. The book has a single narrative, but with the app, you can jump around a lot. And I did that a little bit at first, and I found myself kind of, you know, okay, I'll read two or three scenes here, and then two or three scenes over there, and I'll try to sort of approach the same scene in two or three different ways. And every once in a while, that was kind of neat, and it gave me a slightly different picture of the scene. But I would say that by the time I was a third of the way through the book, I was just, each time I came to it, I picked one storyline and followed that as far as I could. And by about 60 or 70% of the way there, I was mostly looking to get done. <laughs> it just sort of ran away with itself. Because, I mean, yeah, let's face it, uh, you know, Piers is, is, is an author, not a, a game developer. Right. And one thing that someone who is a game developer said when I was describing this was, this has been done a fair amount. And there are actually games being developed now that are a lot more interactive. But the notion of a book that you can sort of flip through and, and move around in, uh, I actually have a copy of the Dictionary of the Khazars. Oh, yeah. Which is a very similar kind of thing, although there's much less narrative structure to it. It's a series of, of dictionary and encyclopedia entries from three different cultures that sort of overlap and sort of tell a history story. Um, well, it's one of uh, Christopher Priest's The Adjacent, 
that was a sort of gazetteer of the um, dream archipelago. And that was actually doing the same kind of thing, not in so many world, uh, you know, words, but that's effectively um, the, the way the entries for the, the gazetteer were arranged. You were sort of pulling a story out. I don't know what, the, what, what Megan feels, but you know, to me it felt like this was somebody who discovered something and he was sort of way, way, way out of his comfort zone and thinking, oh, this is interesting. But what he's done is actually, you know, to me as a, an SF reader, it was very familiar. I wonder if... <laughs> The, both the uh, the great achievement, if you like, but also the terrible frustration of this novel is that on the one hand, it, it's possible to actually read it as a novel about a not very experienced novelist's thought processes and the ways in which he's trying to put together a story. He appears himself as an extremely experienced you know, novelist. I mean, the instance of The Finger Post, which is the first one, of his I read. It's a very complex novel uh, taking the same event from a, a series of different viewpoints. So as himself as a novelist, he's extremely experienced. So I sort of found myself wondering on the one hand if what he was actually trying to do was to sort of give us the inside of a novelist's head, so to speak, or a not very experienced novelist's head. To me, it felt it became caught up in its own cleverness after a while. And he sort of got distracted by the fact that he'd got all these different stories going and all these different references. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, there's a level on which it's a very Oxford kind of novel. You know, it's got Alice, it's got the Inklings. I found after a while, uh, I, I don't know whether you were doing the same, Megan, but I was sort of, um, I kind of got this I spy checklist thing going in my mind. That became more and more irritating as time went on because I didn't feel that we were actually getting anywhere as a result. Yeah, nothing felt very genuine. It was just sort of a, a hat to put on. There were a lot of like big eye-winky feminist mo moments that were just a little too eye-winky to mean anything. It just felt artificial. But then again, like you're saying, maybe that was the point. Maybe that's the idea is to see what a storyteller's head would look like. If you're going to do that, you need to actually be inside the mind of a first-rate storyteller and Henry, bless his heart. <laughs> Is there more we want to say about Arcadia? I have to say, this is the one whose presence on the list, shortlist, mystifies me. And genuinely mystifies me. When I started reading the shortlist, this was the first one I read. Because uh, I sort of thought, oh, I've enjoyed other things by peers. But seriously, this one, um, I can see that it's got science fictional elements. I like the fact that in the uh, future, Hans Lip is insisting on the idea of pocket universes, that it absolutely must be pocket universes. And no, this time, it really is time travel. Which is, you know, it's a kind of, it's a nice little thing, but that's about all you can say for it. I'm trying very hard to avoid saying, I can't imagine what the judges were thinking, because indeed I cannot imagine what the judges are thinking, because I wasn't there. But in this instance, genuinely, I can't see why they put that one on the shortlist. Okay, we're going to move on from the mystery that is Arcadia to Children of Time, which I often found myself thinking of as spiders in space. There is a woman, she's kind of a mad scientist type, and she's ready to populate this newly terraformed world with some sort of gene-modified virus that's supposed to infect these apes and create a new type of human race. And instead, things happen, things explode, and of course, the virus never makes it to the apes, and instead it makes it to spiders on the planet. Meanwhile, there are these humans who are 
I guess flash forward into the future. They're escaping Earth. There are all these pods going off because Earth has just become a total disaster. So, you know, not that unrealistic. And this one group of people stumbles upon this terraformed Earth with the spiders on it, but it's being guarded by the mad scientist who has now become integrated into this AI-type computer. And she's like, stay away from my babies. So they go off to some other place with all these crazy little things that happen along the way and then they decide to come back because that seems to be the best place to settle. I think that covers it. The thing that I found, especially having just read Arcadia, was it's kind of, much like Arcadia had the two or the three interacting storylines, with Children of Time we have the spiders uplifting and the Generation Starship leaving and then coming back. This, this felt like kind of homage to traditional sci-fi themes. And, and there were a couple of times where I was like, you know what? I really wish that this was the one with the app so that I could just jump ahead and do more spider storyline. Or I could just jump ahead and do more uh, more Generation Starship storyline. And I felt the same way. Yeah, the spiders were more interesting. And every time I got to the next section where it would be the human story, it was like, oh, you know, how, how quickly can I read through this part to get back to the interesting stuff? And I think it's because I think a lot of times what we expect from science fiction is that it's supposed to reflect back on us what it means to be human and, and or not even just science fiction, but spec- speculative fiction in general, that there's some sort of, you know, human component to it. Whereas the humans in this novel were very cardboard. They never transgressed that. They, they've continued to be cardboard almost to the very end. Now that I've read the whole thing, it seems to me like it really is just a book about the spiders. The humans were supposed to stay in human-type cardboard cutouts in order to put them next to and contrast them next to these spiders that are so much more vibrant and vivid. But going through it, I really was bored with those humans. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I I felt the same way. I agree entirely, Megan. The spiders. Yes. I especially loved the early scenes with them. I I thought there was a really really good job of making me feel like they were very alien and like just interacted with the world differently from humans in really important ways, especially because Mm -hmm. the notion is evolving from spiders who don't really think very much. And so I loved seeing them begin more alien and then develop into a civilization. But by about halfway, two thirds of the way through the spider episodes, it really felt like we were checking boxes okay, the spiders need to ward off the great barbarian incursion, in this case, the ants, because like their society needs to be able to come together a bit more. And then spiders need to have an equivalent of the Black Death because they need to be inspired to do science and learn how genetics work. And then they need to tame the ants and, and make the development from using ant colonies for only one purpose to lots of different purposes because, and it was just like, okay, we're at some point I would read the opening to a spider episode and find myself saying, all right, what development in Western Europe are we matching here? And how long is it going to take us to get there? (laughs) And, and I, I started to find that tedious Part of the reason why I think it was so charming from the earlier scenes is because it feels like a documentary almost. 
Mm-hmm. And so it has that, it sort of draws you in like you're watching this little documentary and, and, you know, those spiders are skittering around and, you know, becoming aware of each other and that they're one. And I don't know, it just, it's felt more of like a documentary piece, which I don't know, I find that kind of stuff interesting. And I felt like he was writing in that way. And then, yeah, as they start to move on to these more sapient beings, of course, the documentary piece is shed and it does become more of a, uh, yeah, I could see it was a ticking of boxes as you're going through what, what humanity has progressed through and also how the spiders are different like how their air technology and flying and that sort of thing, how that was different from humanity. So I thought it was interesting and well thought out. But I can see how it could be tedious too. Mm, Well, I I felt it sort of sagged a bit after a while. What you were saying, Jonah, is absolutely right. But what it reminded me of, uh, actually, Megan saying it's like a documentary, I agree. It it reminded me of sort of rather um, old-fashioned accounts of naturalists uh, writing about natural history, which I've always rather enjoyed. And so sort of the idea of casting um, insects and arachnids and so on in a sort of not quite... uh, not not sort of fully anthropomorphic, but that, that that's sort of leaning slightly towards that sort of reading human uh, motives sometimes into their actions, and I always find that kind of thing rather um, charming too. Later on, some of the things they did, you know, like figuring out uh, flight and um, going into space. Oh, I loved the going into space. Yes. Bit. Yes. It, was, it was when he did things like that. It sort of balanced out the fact that there was a, a rather um, mechanistic approach to you know the spider's development. Every now and again, he'd do something like the going into space, and you think, "Yeah, okay, I'm going to forgive him the rest of that because this yes. is just wonderful." And now we'll move from the spiders to that other storyline, the Generation Starship with humans, the one that goes forth and then returns. It strikes me it's sort of one of the great problems with a generation of Starship. It really does seem to be the one way forward is that the whole thing has to descend into dysfunctionality. You know, and the inevitable thing with a, a, any kind of you know sort of generation Starship or people being put into hibernation and woken up again at various intervals is this sense of dislocation. Um, you know, sort of emotionally and chronologically. And I I felt he was making an attempt to reach towards that and you know, to talk about it. But the problem was, with the same few people being sort of woken up time and time again to deal with the ongoing crisis, um, you you just really wanted them to get on with the crisis, whereas the crisis had to be sort of parceled out to try and reflect, uh, you know, the sort of the fact that the, the length of this trip, at which point you inadvertently were reminded that just how boring space travel is going to be yes. at any, any distance. And he wasn't really sort of, I, I felt deliberately addressing that, but that consequence <laughs> led into some rather dull fiction as a result. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was Tomcat Redroom blog made the point that as the spiders are developing and becoming more rational and more scientific, the humans are becoming less rational and losing much of their technology. So, Maureen, your point about the reflection, it really is a, a reflection. And the only thing about that that kind of bugged me is that I get annoyed when science fiction is opposing science and religion. I, again, here's the question. Should this be on a, a short list you know, of what is ostensibly the best science fiction published in the UK last year? I th- 
couldn't help feeling that, you know, although there was a, a lot of interesting material in the book and there was sort of, you know, areas where it, it was quite willing to sort of jump in and have a go. Is that enough to, you know, put it on a short list? So I liked this. It was one of my favorite books of <laughs> the of six. I liked it and I feel like lot of ways, Children's Time is both very traditional, but also because of the spiders, kind of original. I, I said at the end, I feel like it's simultaneously ambitious and old-fashioned. And I felt like it executed on what it was trying to do pretty well. Yes, I think it's very ambitious, but yes, I've, I felt old-fashioned. In the end, probably not quite as old-fashioned as it seems at the beginning. The spiders kind of, you know, win through. Next, we get to talk about Europe at Midnight, one of the sparkling points of the shortlist. It stands out by itself. It's just kind of just a, a unique book out of this entire shortlist if we were to tie them all together. But I don't know, Maureen was about to say something. Well, I was just thinking, actually, um, the thing that struck me about that, you have the kind of link between Europe at Midnight and Arcadia in that there is yeah. the, the engagement with the pocket universe. And also, um, in a way, I think that Europe at Midnight is sort of partaking of the the Le Carre about it as well. The the, the, the tone reminds yeah. me of uh, Le Carre, you know, sort of Tinker Taylor and Smiley's people in particular. This is it done well, as opposed to the way in which it turns up in Arcadia. Yeah, I mean, I I actually I need to point out here that um I have known. Dave Hutchinson for uh, something like 30 years. And we're very, very old friends. So um, I might just gush because I, I really love this novel. <laughs> All right, Maureen, set us up. Oh, well, how do I set this up? It's a companion piece to um, Europe in Autumn, but you don't need to have read Europe in Autumn to read this novel. But it, it's helpful to know that in Europe in Autumn, it's based around the idea of a pocket universe that has sort of hidden itself away, but people are able to cross over into it. Europe in autumn is set in a, I suppose what we could almost now say is sort of a post-Brexit Europe, which is uh, uh, starting to disintegrate. So, uh, you know, Hutch called that one really, really well. Um, it's lots and lots of micro states and some of them are, are very contingent. You know, they sort of come and go, but there's underpinning them all is this pocket universe. So, for Europe at Midnight, um, this appears to be happening somewhere completely differently. But as you read on, uh, you realise there are two strands of uh, story. One which is uh, set in a world that seems to be recognisably the world in which we're, we're all living, into which uh, this stranger he's appeared, he appears to sort of have no roots in the world. And then there's this other world in which there is uh, another place in which uh, some sort of war is going on, and you only very gradually realise that it's written mostly from within the pocket universe and as time goes on you realise that the main character has actually found his way out of the pocket universe but there is more the nature of the pocket universe itself is not what it initially seems to be it's set what appears to be a sort of a pocket universe wide university which I found quite intriguing it's a wonderful I mean, to me, it's a wonderful piece of work because it may just be that I'm British and I like the understated, but it's the tone. I, I love the way that Hutch actually has this fantastically understated style of writing. He does so much with comparatively little. It's wonderful to read. I love it very much. He just cracks me up. It's really funny. He was tweeting snippets about how he viewed his novels. He seemed to see Midnight as the the darker 
of the two, to me, it felt a lot lighter and more refreshing than Autumn. I feel like this one made me laugh out loud a lot more. Along with that, though, it's not just funny. I mean, it is actually very on point with the way he has depicted these sort of encapsulated little pockets of Europe and Britain. And this one's very funny in particular because it does have that campus pocket universe, which that in itself made me want to buy a bunch of copies and send them to all my old professors because I, I can't <laughs> imagine anyone. I can't imagine anyone who has worked on a university campus not loving this novel just for that. Alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really liked this. And what struck me, I mean, I, I do, I love the pocket universe and the university. I love the ways things get revealed. There was no point where I was like, oh, now I get this. It was just, it, it all rolled out so smoothly and seamlessly. So I loved that there was the pocket universe and, and the way that that interacts with our world, but also just the fact that that's kind of the science fictional conceit and that you have to learn a lot about how it works doesn't intrude into the book and the characters and the plot. And, and they all they, they work together really, really well, like in ways that I didn't say with either Arcadia or Children of Time, where with both of those, I was like, oh, okay, this is the particular plot line we're in, or this is the particular thing that we're going to be doing with this scene. I never had that that sense with Europe at Midnight. I was just, I was like, okay, I want to keep going. This is this is engaging, mm-hmm. and it's pulling me in further, and I want to find out what's going to happen next, and I want to see how all this tension gets resolved. It's a kind of science fiction I'd actually really like to see more of. It's not about showcasing the scientific development. You know, it's not that that drives the story. That the story is there, uh, has emerged from the scientific development or the technological development. But it's actually the story that we're focusing on. So we're learning about, you know, the science fictional. I really hate using the Darko-Suvian novum, the idea, but the the novum does not drive the novel. The novel is exploiting the novum, and it's about it's the story that's the important thing. I really, really like that kind of science fiction because I have um, a story to work with, and also you know, the little problem-solving bit of my mind is sitting there quietly watching as well, trying to figure out what's going on. But the figuring out is not the most important thing. There is the it's the entertainment. I think what also works with this novel is there's a personality to it. I feel like with so much of SF in general, it's like, I don't know, if writers are told to remove all elements of personality and follow these steps. And so everything just feels very generic. I think the most important character in a novel is the writer's voice. I always want to know what they're trying to say. What are they about? And I feel like that's here, whether it's Hutchinson himself speaking or if this is a personality he's he's put on for the novel. The novel has personality and that's what keeps me interested. In the end, do I want to sit here and spend hours with you while you're writing words at me? It better be interesting. (laughs) It doesn't seem to have jumped the Atlantic at this point. Like, I feel like it should have. Yeah. I think I do hear both of you saying that there is a very distinctive voice and outlook. I would like to put a little fly in this appointment. Go on. Because (laughs) our spy, or one one of our police officers who becomes a member of the security service early on, thanks to himself at the end of a chapter, he got up. Dropped the cigarette, grounded out with his toe against the concrete. He had been a middle-ranking member of the security service. Now he appeared to be the point man in the opening moves of the intelligence war. He wondered if his wife had forgiven him yet. 
And it struck me consistently reading this book that there were men as the protagonists. I have a note late in the book that I think there were two different points where a woman close to one of the male protagonists was killed in order to sort of move him along or motivate him in some way. And that rubbed me the wrong way. And mm. it bugged me and I felt like, because because there's another quote about, I'd come from a world where everyone was, was white. No one had to pay for anything. There were no gods. Our books had been rewritten and edited. Compared to this place, my home was a pale and sipid thing. And I feel like in some ways there's a real celebration of, of diversity and possibility in the world. Um, but there were also some parts of Europe at midnight where I was like, all right, so much men. Can we, can we have women? Can we have women together? Can we have at least them not being really unpleasant? Because I feel like having a change in your, in your life and your, your work demanding a lot more of you and having your marriage dissolve because of that is in some ways less interesting than figuring out how to maintain your marriage while you're doing that. Like, there there, there were other paths to take that I, I sort of wish I could have seen. I think it was the blogger at Wet, Dark, and Wild. Her name is Kate. And I remember her saying something like, this is a very blokish book. And, you know, it didn't occur to me until I read that and thought, yeah, all valid complaints. I still like the book a lot, but they're there. It was not that I didn't enjoy the book because of that. It was that I didn't enjoy the book as much as I might have otherwise. And I feel like there are some books where sort of central to the conceit of the book, and I'm kind of thinking about Grimdark as, as a genre here, is a notion of a very particular way of like men being men and violent urges and like the world can be dark and scary. And that the whole, that whole worldview that kind of suffuses a lot of those books can be really off-putting. And this didn't, I didn't feel that sense from Europe at Midnight. I did not particularly like how, how women were handled without it, without feeling like that complaint intruded into the entire outlook of the book. Is there more we should say? I kind of hate to end on my, <laughs> on my comment about women, given how much gushing we have done. No, it's, it's an interesting point you raise, actually. I, I remember when I, I think you mentioned this on Twitter a while ago, and I was looking at that and thinking, ooh, yes, he's right. And I'm sort of having a little, yeah, I've been having a little argument with myself I, ever since. Cause on, I, on the one hand, I can see that Europe at Midnight is sort of, you know, partaking of um, things like um, Le Carre, uh, um, Tinker Taylor, which mm -hmm. is a, another book that is seriously lacking in uh, in women. So I, I can see that it's doing you know, what it's riffing on. But as you say, there is that problem that maybe, maybe, maybe in 2016 or 2015 when it was written, maybe we should be thinking about moving beyond that if we possibly can. Uh, so yes, I feel a trifle conflicted. And at the same time, I, I there's so much about this novel that I... I really do like a great deal. Then again, I, I guess we could say that, you know, the perfect thing is so rare. It seems to me that the main speculative aspect is pocket universes, which are presented as thing more than kind of explained. Is this science fiction? This is science fiction, and I want more science fiction like this. Mm, yeah, I think it's it's science fiction because... Dave is using the idea of the pocket universe. I like the way in which he's using the, the sort of the, the motif or the, you know, the metaphor of the pocket universe to actually talk about 
the here and now. And there is that idea that one element of science fiction, if you take the sort of Ballardian approach of holding up a mirror to our own time, it seems to me that this is something that Dave is actually doing right now. For those of us in, in Europe, we're sort of sitting in the middle of this thinking, my God, how did we get to this stage? This novel, I think, is incredibly pertinent in that it, it, it's, it's of the now, but it's also speculating about what might happen, you know, in, in, in the, the not too distant future. To me, it's such a very clever blend of the, the science fictional novum and the actual contemporary situation. And it certainly, it feels to me very much to be science fiction, but that particular strand of science fiction that has you looking around the world in which you are living thinking, you know, oh my. All right, we're now halfway through the Clark shortlist, part two of our discussion covering Way Down Dark, Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, and The Book of Phoenix will be coming shortly, though probably after the actual awards are handed out. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.